Hey everyone, welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm excited to sit down today with Art Bell, the author of Constant Comedy, a memoir. And today we're going to get into a little bit about how Comedy Central was founded, started, kind of what what was the process, the creative process behind it. And then I kind of want to look a little bit at the business of comedy and uh, see where we go from there. So Art, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches. Thanks for having me, Tom. So tell me a little bit about the memoir itself real quick, and, and we can go back in time. I know we'll jump around a little bit, but to give people some context for the book, like why'd you write it in the first place? Well, I started writing a couple of years ago. Well, maybe three years ago at this point. And I started writing a memoir about my childhood experiences I had. And then one day I wrote a story about something that happened at Comedy Central. And I was in a writer's group at the time. And everybody kind of woke up and said, wow, that was good. You know, we didn't know you were involved in that. And I said, yeah. And they said, write some more. So I did. And then it kind of grew into um, a number of stories. And then I realized that this was a great adventure. Uh, This was my greatest career adventure. And it really deserved um, not only the stories, but sort of the, the flow of what was going on from the beginning until the time I left comedy. Yeah, because I'm sure it's kind of one of those things, right? Connecting the dots now looking back on it and it it deserving a story deserving to be told. So go back to kind of the beginning. How'd you even get started in this space in comedy? And uh, maybe walk us through a little bit of kind of how it all began. Well, it all began when I was a kid, I think. I was uh, seven or eight years old and I loved comedy. And from then on, I was a real comedy geek. I watched television, all the comedy I could get on television. Uh, I listened to my parents' comedy albums, which some of them were kind of dirty, you know, comedy albums. I listened to those. And then, you know, when um, Robert Klein, George Carlin, Bill Cosby, those guys were putting out albums around the time I was in sixth or seventh grade. And I was just playing those over and over and over. And I really kind of focused on comedy. I read Lenny Bruce's autobiography. I really wanted to know how it worked. And I wanted to be funny, too. I wanted to understand if, uh, you know, what it took to be funny. So I did some writing in high school. I did some writing and performing in college. Not stand-up. I will point that out. I did um, sketch comedy, writing sketch and performing sketch. And interestingly enough, I majored in economics and despite the fact that I love comedy and love television, I got a job offer as an economist in Washington, D.C. And I said, great, you know, I'm going to take that. And I did because I thought it was cool. <laughs> and I loved it. It was working with very smart people for a few years. Uh, but at the end of that time, I, was, I, I found myself reading a magazine called Cole Weekly. Uh, and I was because I was working on energy issues and things. And I just thought, I don't think I can do this for the next 30 years. And I realized what I wanted to do was change the channel on my life, you know, just really do something completely different. So I decided to go back to school, which is, I think, a common way to do that. I went to business school. I pretty much had in mind going into the television business at that point. I thought, I I do like it. I do enjoy it. When I got to, it was Wharton grad school. When I got there, I asked around. I said, so what, do you have like a club for guys like me? Do you have, you know, people who are interested in the entertainment industry? And the answer was no. Um, However, we do have something here called the Wharton Follies, which is a, an annual musical comedy review that's written and put on by the students. You might check those guys out. So I go to the meeting and lo and behold, there's everybody like me, either people who had been in the entertainment industry. And I'm talking about Broadway directors, musicians, choreographers, I mean, all kinds of people who wanted to change their channel on their lives were there. A lot of people from the Harvard Hasty Pudding show, which was, uh, you know, one of the great college comedies of all time that's done every year. And the second year we did it, I ended up writing the whole show. And I thought it was a great experience. It reminded me how much I loved comedy. And it was around at that point, I started thinking, okay, I want to go work in television. Too bad there's not a comedy network because that's where I really want to work. I I want to work in comedy. Um, So I got a job in the entertainment industry. I, I got a job at CBS. And it was like working at any other big corporation. I was so far away from the television product, you have no idea. I could have been working at IBM. And that wasn't really suiting me. A friend of mine who had gone to HBO called me up and he said, uh, remember, this is the mid-80s. He said, HBO, man, this place is crazy. These guys are walking around the hall saying, we're going to change television. 
and they're young and they're fun and they got a lot of ideas. You got to come over here. And he says, and the good news is they're looking for somebody to do forecasting of their subscribers. And you're the only guy I know in the whole business who actually knows anything about economic forecasting. And lo and behold, I got the job. And I did that for a couple of years at HBO. But I kept saying what I really want to do is programming. And that was how that all started. So, yeah. So tell, walk me through actually real, real quick. I'm, I'm really curious on that front because that's probably something in your mind, getting that to work at HBO in that context real quick as somebody who's like projecting that stuff out. That's, I don't know many people that would ever get that experience, right? Like in a, in a, in any kind of media company with that kind of reach and then to work in that kind of capacity, it's very, that even that's very niche, like that skill set in particular. Did you apply that to like Comedy Central at all? You know something, here's what I learned. Every job you get, every challenge you take on is informed by what you did before. I mean, you use, and I don't know if everybody thinks about it this way, but I certainly do. You use every skill in your toolkit wherever you are. And that particular situation was a case where, believe me, I did not want to continue doing econometric forecasting. That's what I walked out on. Not that I didn't like it, but I really wanted to do something else. So when they said, okay, you're going to do econometric forecasting because we got we to have accurate subscriber forecasts, I thought, okay, this is my chance to get there. And if I do a good job, which is the other thing I recommend, wherever job you're in, do a good one, then people will notice me and I'll get a, maybe a reputation around the company and I'll just maybe I'll be able to get closer to programming. That was my plan. That's as far as it went. And the question you asked, did I use that? in my comedy career. Well, there's not a whole lot of econometric forecasting required, but you do have to know a lot about the, econ the economy and economics and business and how to read a balance sheet and an income statement. I mean, all the things that, you know, I'm sure your, your listeners are familiar with. And I was steeped in that by that time. So that all came in handy. Yeah. Also specifically and still in the industry of like media and broadcasting and yeah, programming, like you were saying with, with one of the biggest up and comers at that time. So what was that transition like then the next big transition, that next big leap, which was from doing that to, I guess we're, well, yeah. What, ha what happens next? Well, it wasn't such a big leap. Um, it did work out the way I thought people did start noticing me and there was a, a division, a, a group in the, in the company called new business development. It wasn't really new business development. They were just trying to figure out if they could get a new pay television channel called Festival to work. Festival was supposed to be HBO for people who didn't like sex, violence, and bad language. And the first day I walked into that job, I was a marketing analyst at that point. I said, you know what? How are we going to sell something that, you know, sells entertainment by what it doesn't have? And especially sex, violence, and bad language, which is, you know, something that people sometimes look for. And everybody went, shh, don't say anything, because it was an extremely hard sell. But HBO had done research. They found out people who didn't buy HBO uh, didn't buy it because it was either too expensive or they didn't want that kind of bad language or sex or violence in their home because they had kids or for religious reasons. And that was the plan. We're going to put this channel together. But as you can imagine, it didn't work. Now, the good news is I spent a lot of time on the road doing focus groups with uh, people about how they use television, what they liked about it, what they got out of it. And I found out that was really kind of my first lesson in what a personal experience people have watching television. You know, they get it's, it's not just about flipping on the channel and watching something. It, it's really about, you know, something it fulfills in their lives. And I heard from a lot of people who watched, you know, soap operas because they really had not, you know, they were lonely or they wanted to see other people in more trouble than them or whatever. I mean, I got a lot of personal stories uh, and I, I started to understand that television was an important part of people's lives. It wasn't just entertainment. I did slip in a question every now and then about a comedy network to see if anybody was interested in it even though that wasn't part of my job. And every once in a while, they'd say, yeah, that sounds cool. I'd like all, an all comedy network. I'd watch that, sure. Um, so that channel, Festival, that I was working on failed in about eight or nine months. Instead of firing me, HBO said, look, you know, we kind of like you. Why don't you stick around? We'll find something for you to do. 
but I didn't have much to do. So I started, I had been thinking about a comedy network and I started thinking about it some more. And I thought, okay, you know, maybe I'll, I'll get something down on paper. And then I thought, hey, why not pitch the head of HBO programming? Because her name was Bridget. And I said, if, if Bridget likes it, then maybe they'll do it. You know, that'd be great. So I went to Bridget, uh, made an appointment. She agreed to see me. She didn't know who I was. And I went in and I said, you know, Bridget, I really think that HBO should do a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week comedy network, all comedy all the time. She said, stop right there. It's the worst idea I've ever heard. And let me tell you why. Nobody wants to watch that much comedy. Let me tell you. Second, no comedian of any magnitude is going to be on the channel. Do you think Robin Williams is going to be on a comedy channel? Forget about it. You know, and, and third, there's a lot of comedy on the dial already. What do we need more for? And HBO at that time, as she pointed out, we have the best comedy on TV. And they did. They were doing comedy specials with the best comedians. And they were uncut. So people could see Robin Williams act as if he were doing it in a club, which means bad language, crazy ideas, and all the other stuff. So uh, she pretty much said, you don't know much about television. You don't know much about comedy. Thanks for coming by and uh, see you soon. I left and, and there was a lot of cold water to get thrown on me, but I quickly realized she was wrong. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I, I want to know why. I also have a couple questions I might come back to, but why, why, why did, how exactly did you find out that she was wrong here? Like no, what, I, what, what? I, I didn't find out so much as felt I'm walking yeah. out of her office I'm going back to my office. I feel terrible because she just basically said, not only no, but you don't know what you're talking about. And right. I thought that's not true. It's just not true. Somebody is going to do a 24-7 comedy network. I was yep. convinced of it. And I will yep. say, that was an important part of you know, getting somewhere with that idea. Being convinced yeah. that it was inevitable. So I was going to do it. HBO was going to do it. Somebody was going to do it. But I had no doubt that it was going to happen. And I was surprised when other people said never happened. And this is fascinating, too, because, you know, again, I can't help but make like parallels to, to our times in terms of like, what are the other things that we take for granted as institutions that are currently set up the way they are? And right. And that like there's it's something that's working um, maybe well, maybe not so well, but it's working. And so the idea of coming in with something that is kind of disruptive in a way, uh, maybe to the way things are currently being done and whether it's worth taking. And then like the, the, the same risk analysis is, is generated, the same thoughts of like, okay, well, can we test out this new thing or not? The same kind of old stories start to pop up, but people kind of not being willing to make the, make the change or um, invest in something kind of maybe that seems outlandish because maybe something else is, I think it's something that like business owners go through. And entrepreneurs and creatives go through is the, is is this exact kind of challenge in many ways in their own in their own forms and fashions. If what are your thoughts on that? I think that's exactly right. Uh, I, I think that anybody starting a new business, um, they have to think about the idea as something that is definitely going to happen one way or the other. I like thinking about new business ideas that way for a couple of reasons. One, um, it gives you the momentum to think about it, design it, put it together, sell it, raise money for it, and all that kind of stuff. If it's an inevitability, keep going. If you get a problem or a rock thrown at you, walk around it or solve the problem. So that's one thing. And the second thing about the inevitability part is that it makes you think about the following. There's going to be competition. Never underestimate the competition. You may be first, but if you think your product is inevitable, it may not be the last. And if you get anywhere at all, and I mean anywhere, you get up to the point where you've made an announcement about launching your product or that you got funded or whatever it is, everybody's going to look over and say, wow, that guy got pretty far with that product or that gal got pretty far with that product. Um, maybe I should look at doing the same thing or something like it. Uh, all of those things happened to me at comedy. And I, I just want to add one other thing. You point out that we have institutions around today that, seem like they've, they're successful and that they've always been successful. Comedy Central was uh, a complete failure the first year. <laughs> I mean, in that, 
nobody knew if it was going to work. Even after it launched, I was I went to work every day thinking, okay, they're going to tap me on the shoulder and saying, Art, it's over. It's shut down. We're not spending any more money on it. Um, certainly, I saw that happen with the previous project that HBO did. And this was a much bigger risk, a much higher profile risk, a much more expensive risk. And when it didn't get shot out of the cannon on day one, people at HBO started getting embarrassed because they had a great reputation in the television business. And there I was with this new channel ruining it. So I just want to point out, and that's why the name of the channel, uh, I'm sorry, the name of my book, it's a memoir, is Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. The reason is I want to I want to make sure people know that it was not easy and it wasn't an instant success. And it took a lot of people and a lot of really good work to make sure that that thing got up and running. I say those, those um, insights that you just shared were, were, were gold because uh, the idea of like assume it's um, inevitable and then what comes along with it, what, with it being inevitable. If it's successful, people will see it. There will be competition, et cetera. And then there was one in particular, like at the end, that last one I think you mentioned. I was really kind of curious about how um, how that played out for you, like knowing that. So, like again, you're you're you wanted to get this off the grounds, and you just admitted, self admitted that the first year was kind of a failure in that regard. What give me a little bit of the lead up to it, like to get it going then. Um, okay. that it took to get it going, even right. even before that we knew it's that first year was kind of maybe a dud or something like that. But I'm curious about that first bootstrap piece of it. Well, the, the first thing is I had, when I left Bridget's office, I yet to convince anybody it was a good right. idea. And what I did is I went back to my office, wrote it up, stapled it to my resume and started to send it out to other places thinking maybe I'll get a new job. Maybe somebody else will be interested in this. And I actually did explore a little bit self-funding. I mean, I had talked to friends about this, not self-funding. <laughs> I didn't have that kind of money, but seeing if there was a venture capital or some kind of money available. But what happened is my boss's boss knew I wasn't doing anything and saw me working on something one day and said, what are you working on? And I showed him and he said, wow, this is cool. Let's go talk to the chairman of HBO. And that's what we did. He took me into the office without any preparation, without any uh, presentation, nothing. He just said, come on, we're going in. And he said, Tell Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, what your idea is and how you would do it. And I pitched it for 15 minutes. And Michael said, sounds interesting. Let's, let's take a look at it. And that's how it happened. And a couple of things there. I went in with a lot of passion because I'd been thinking about it for a long time. And I also went in with vision, meaning I knew what I wanted it to be if it worked. And that was the center of the comedy universe. And that's how I described it. And that, you know, that kind of description, you know, where you're looking 10 years into the future and saying, if this thing is successful, here's how it's going to change the world. That's what people are looking for when you pitch. So Michael said, yes, teamed me up with uh, some guys at HBO who are in the comedy business. Remember, I had no programming experience and I had no comedy experience. And comedy is a business. I was teamed up with a guy named Stu Smiley. He, uh, he was a comedy professional. He'd been in the business for 10 years. And the first thing he said to me when he met me, what do you know about comedy? And he meant it. And he said that a hundred times that first year because he had been in the business for a long time. He knew the comedians personally. He knew their agents. He knew what things cost. He knew how to put a show together. I didn't know any of that. And there I was teamed up with him <laughs> as kind of a co-equal, you know? Uh, and it was rough. I, I didn't anticipate that as a problem, but it was a problem. I was not accepted into the comedy community with open arms saying, come here, kid, do everything I do. I'll teach you what, you know, I'll teach you how to do this. It was very difficult, but I did find my way. We launched the channel. Before we launched, Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, gave a huge press conference. This was six months before we launched, saying it was going to be the greatest television channel ever. It was going to be the funniest TV you've ever seen. He built this thing up in, in, in the press's mind so much that when it came out on the first day, and it wasn't all of those things, because who would have expected it to be, um, the press pounced. They started saying, you know, we were the gong channel. This is the worst cable channel ever. I think a lot of it was schadenfreude. I think Michael Fuchs, who had been declared the most powerful man in Hollywood a few months earlier, 
by the New York Times, they were happy to see him <laughs> taken down a notch. And so that was the kind of re response we got from the press. The audience, the audience started to gather. That's all I can say. I mean, and I looked for for markers of success because there's lots of there's lots of things around that are going to convince you that you're failing. People are telling you it's not going well. You're people are asking you what's your new plan. People are saying this is a disaster, but nobody's saying, hey, look what's working. And that's what I did. I looked what was working. First thing, we got in the mail Mystery Science Theater 3000 which was a show that was would become a cult hit for us and really a beacon for the channel. And the point is, it came in the mail. And uh, for any of the, uh, the podcast listeners who don't know what it is, it's some guys sitting in front of a, a movie making fun of it. Brilliant show, would not have gotten on television anywhere else. Wasn't going to show up on NBC or HBO. And here's he, the, the note they sent was, we heard you guys are putting together a comedy network. Is this something that would work? And I said, great, innovative comedy, finding us. I knew that was going to happen. Second thing, comedians started hanging out. They just started to hang out at the studio. They started to look for us. They started to show up with and say, hey, I have an idea, or you know, maybe I can be a writer here. The comedians found us. Previously, they had nowhere to hang out, right? Clubs. you know, And that was only a limited amount of time. Uh, but suddenly, they're hanging out. And not only that, but they were flattered that somebody was throwing them a channel the way MTV had thrown musicians a channel, rock and roll a channel, and ESPN had thrown athletes a channel. It was, it was a source of pride suddenly for the comedians. So those are the things that kept me going that first year as we were trying to put it together. And you didn't know those were the signals though at, uh, you know, in the beginning or did you, you know, cause you, well, it was like, you know, you mentioned those were the things that did see that they, they uh, indicated that you were on the right track. They were indicators that there are signals like this is, we're in the right track, we're in the right direction, right? But you didn't know to look for them going into them, like that, that specific thing. So I'm kind of curious your mindset even going into it. What were you looking for in the beginning to, to navigate that? Well, as I said, I pitched it thinking about what it would look like 10 years in the future. Right. I wanted it to be the biggest brand in comedy. I wanted it to be the first name in comedy. I wanted it to be it to be the center of the comedy business, all of those things. So when the comedians started showing up and innovative programming started showing up, did I have that listed out as, okay, if this happens, good at this? No, but I realized, wait a second, that's going to help us become the center of the comedy business because here's all these people coming to us. We're already the center. Right. And as far as brand, you know, the other big brand in comedy, Saturday Night Live. So, uh, you know, I was hopeful that we were going to take a slightly different direction, but end up with a similar result. We would be first name in comedy. That's awesome. So you, this is just the, that first year you had those indicators, even though you got some bad public press to begin with. Um, when did things start to change in the maybe public or I guess, well, both sides, because there's probably like a public image that was going on at that time. And then, of course, your, your internal mechanisms because you had to grow this thing you were responsible for it you know it was your baby so to speak so like how was that navigating it then after that first year like what happened next well the first year was pretty uh, consequential mm. because we did start to get an audience and mm -hmm. we started to look at that audience and we realized that they were young people and that they were looking to us for edgy comedy and the fact that they knew who we were when their parents didn't as a matter of fact we would go to um ad sales or uh, affiliate sales meetings with uh, advertisers. And the advertiser would say, you know, I looked at this thing. I don't get it. I think it stinks, but my kid watches it all the time. I don't know what's going on. He's 18 years old. He thinks it's the greatest thing on earth. So, you know, again, these things happen slowly. Your success doesn't come Tuesday if you start out Monday. It comes over time. And so what we did the first year was we looked at what was working, what was not working. Stand-up comedy was working. We did more of that. There were some other things that weren't working. We did less of that. We started to hone in on what our audience was, which is young, young adults, basically, 18 to 34 is what we called it, looking for edgy comedy. And then we started pointing the channel as much in that direction as we could. So that was the process. Listen, the one indicator of success that makes this all work is you have enough revenue, you know, and that means you have enough audience in the television business. So that's what we were doing, trying to figure out how to amass audience. What happened is we did get competition six months after we launched. 
MTV Networks had announced uh, at, at the time that we announced um, that they were going to do a comedy network. It was literally the day after our announcement. I think all they had was a press release because they saw our announcement and said, oh man, are we going to let this go to HBO? And I, as scary as that was, I thought, okay, six months ago, there's zero comedy networks in the world and suddenly there's going to be two. So take that, all you disbelievers. But anyway, they did show up. They launched six months after we did. And we went head to head for six months. And then I thought we were winning. I'll, I'll leave it at that. They were called Ha, the Comedy Network. We were called the Comedy Channel. But the powers that be, meaning Michael Fuchs, the chairman, and the chairman of Viacom that owned MTV Networks and Ha, the, the Comedy Network, said, look, we're going to beat each other into oblivion. Let's merge the channels, and that'll be that. So they did. And I think they merged the channels not knowing whether that merger would actually work. Mergers, as you know, are tough because you're taking two different cultures and two different views of a product, in this case, a comedy network, and you're saying, okay, guys, you work together and figure out what it is, which is exactly what they did to me and the head of programming from the other place. And you have to rename it because you can't use either of the names. That's part of the deal. So we were faced with all that. I quickly discovered that my opposite number and all the people associated with it on his side were just like us. They wanted a comedy network in the world. They, they had gotten into that competitive mindset and they were all comedy enthusiasts too. So now that there was going to be a comedy network, they wanted to make sure it was going to succeed. And we made sure it succeeded. And was that all, at all levels of it too? Like even like that, you know, because again, like there's so many people merging. So, you know, you think about the different creatives that are kind of coming together to collaborate. And I think, yeah, I see, see that as like, if you're in comedy, I mean, isn't that the, like the best part of it sometimes that like the collaboration piece, it seems like it, at least to me from the outside, it seems like that'd be a fun, energetic, yeah. Yeah. but how yeah. about like all the way up, like in the administrative, was there ever any conflict at all? Or did it really kind of merge together that seamlessly for you guys? Well, I wouldn't say seamless, um, but literally yeah. we, we divided things up a little bit at the get-go. We didn't, you know, there were two heads of programming, me and the other guy. We didn't say, okay, we'll be in every meeting together. We'll make every decision together. Right. We kind of divvied things up uh, and that worked pretty well. Not that we didn't have comments on what the other guy was doing and we took those seriously. How'd you go through that process? If you don't mind getting into that a little bit, like how'd you decide to divvy that up? Like if somebody's listening to this and thinking, you know, again, it's just not a business front too. Like if they were ever forced to, or, or, or entered into a merger like that, how might you, or a partnership even, it almost sounds like that. I, I feel like there's some in, interesting insights. Why did yeah. you divvy up what you did? There are, I mean, on the creative side, you've got uh, a question of interests and experience, right? Um, my opposite number was a guy named Mike Klinghoffer. And he had been a producer. So he really knew the, the nitty gritty of production in a way that I didn't. I had produced a couple of things by then. But he had been a producer for years. And that's what he wanted to do. So he got that uh, original programming. I, I was interested more in the gestalt of the channel. I wanted to shape this channel the way I thought about it. And one of the ways you got to do that was on-air promotion. The commercials you run on your own air for your own channel. And I always thought that was, would, was fun. And I took that on and I hired somebody from their side, from the other side, because I thought that guy was really good. And everybody was like, hey, that's cool. You know, I mean, uh, and he hired a bunch of people from both sides. And it really worked out. And it was a great way to have an impact on what the channel would become. And as I said, we, we collaborated on a lot of things too, Mike and I, but that was how we split things up. Yeah, just fascinating. It's really kind of interesting to hear and that it doesn't have to go poorly, that it can go well and that you guys were able to make it happen that way and work, work it out. And uh, so then that, that was okay. So that's a pretty significant event. I mean, these are all milestones that are significant. That's another one. Like even the competition early on that somebody's announcing another channel, that's an indicator, you know, okay, now that you got this merge and it seems like it's, it's been successful or it's uh, integrating well, because I'm sure that was a multi-month process or something like that, maybe a, a while. Um, what was that then like to that's grow right. from there? Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. That was as hard, if not harder in some ways than launching the channel originally. Because launching the channel originally, I had a good idea of what it should be. I convinced other people that's how we should do it. We were going forward. I thought we were winning. And, you know, you're kind of in mid-stride. Suddenly, you're not in mid-stride. You're merging. 
You got to listen to the other guy. You got to make compromises. You got to think about how you're going to continue to make it work. We merged. The merger was announced beginning of December. We got on the air, I believe it was April 1st. So that was the that was kind of the time it took to figure out a new name, get graphics together, figure out what programming we were going to take from either of the channels to make it work, think about what personnel we were going to take. Um, and we also divvied up some of the, you mentioned administrative. We had the ad sales guys came from MTV because they knew that. I mean, that was their bailiwick. And they had some leverage. Um, and then on the HBO side, we took things, uh, the financial, because they had a very strong financial team at HBO. And they said, okay, you're going to take, you know, we'll, we'll provide the financial. So that, that part of it was also split up based on interests uh, and the degree of leverage that would be had in the sales, sales world. And, you know, just who was, who was better at it. Yeah. And it just, you know, goes to show that things can be made better that way too. Um, you know, that we'd like whatever you're doing maybe can actually be amplified in some, some way, shape or form. Like it kind of sounds like that. Like in the end, this became, uh, you know, a, a case study of a successful merger in that regard, but in such a way that it was all, it seemed like the trajectory was, was beneficial versus fighting it out and scrap, you know, again, what, what kind of uh, collateral damage would be involved with two major competitors, that kind of thing. Like that it was, it was, it was very, I don't know, it really just seemed to work out and then you thrived because of it. Certainly in retrospect, uh, it is a merger that worked great. At the time, we were feeling our way around. You talk about collaboration, though. As I said, we quickly got into collaboration mode. And I talk about that in the book. I found that collaboration was always a great way to go about things, especially creative things. I, I know that some creative takes place in a vacuum. You know, it's you and a typewriter and a blank page. Uh, but... I found that a lot of the creative activity that I liked and was involved in was kind of a group activity. It, it looked more like a writer's room in sitcoms, you know, where there's eight or 10 guys sitting around shooting ideas back and forth, trying to make each other laugh, trying to say, oh, that's ridiculous. We could never do that. And somebody would say, yeah, why not? And, you know, that was the collaboration that I think pushed Comedy Central to new and amazing places. We actually had a group called the Buzz Committee, and it was it was built from people all around the network who loved comedy and wanted to be part of this. Um, it was about, again, eight or 10 people. And we did exactly that. And when it came time to make decisions about, okay, how are we going to get some attention? That's why it was called the Buzz Committee. We came up with some great stuff. For example, Johnny Carson had his last show. Uh, about a year and a half or two years after we started. I think that's right. And we said, all right, what are we going to do to celebrate this? I mean, that's the that's been the big place for comedians to break their careers, Johnny Carson. He's going off the air. What are we going to do? And somebody said, we'll go off the air. We're going to go off the air. And I said, wow, that's crazy. He said, yeah, let's just put up a sign that says, we're watching Johnny Carson's last show. You should be too. And that's what we did. And it got so much press. And I know other channels have since done that kind of thing. I know, uh, listen, no good idea does not get imitated in the, in the entertainment business. But we had so much fun with it. We sold a sponsor on the, <laughs> on the sign, you know, that said that. And uh, Johnny Carson mentioned it on the air. He said, these guys, I'm, I'm very flattered that these guys did this for me. Um, so we did lots of stuff like that. And it really kind of, pushed us into new areas, including covering the news. Yeah. Was that, would, would you say at that point then, is that like the next big, like, uh, I guess, transition, like kind of, kind of conquering um, news in a way, like through, through comedy in a way, it's kind of what you guys did, you know, but if you can kind of walk us through that story a little bit. Yes. You know what? As soon as we did started a comedy network, even a comedy channel at HBO, we knew we had to do news. But news is very writer intensive and therefore very expensive. Plus, if you're doing it on a daily basis, it's really crazy. So we put that off. But in 1992, one of the things the Buzz Committee thought about doing is, hey, you know how MST sits in front of movies and those guys make fun of the movies? Why don't we cover the president's State of the Union address and do the same thing, get some comedians to cover that? Now, that 
was probably the craziest idea any of us had ever heard at that point, because there was nothing more serious and to a certain extent considered more boring by our audience than the presidential State of the Union address. But we pursued it and it, it got, the more we did it, the more we liked it. We got Al Franken, who as you know, went on to be Senator, but at that time, Al Franken was the writer performer on Saturday Night Live to do the first one. And he got up there and he covered the president's State of the Union address live. And it was so funny and so different than anything anybody had ever seen in that kind of coverage that once again, the press kind of woke up and said, wow, these guys are doing interesting stuff. And that was a big moment for us. We went on to cover subsequent State of the Union uh, with other comedians. And we also covered the conventions for the next couple of years. And John Stewart was part of that. John Stewart had been part of the original team at Comedy Channel uh, when we launched. And he came with us to Comedy Central. But then he went off to MTV. But we brought him back now and then for some work. And that was one of the things we did. Uh, and the rest, you know, when, when Daily Show got started and he came back to run to uh, anchor that, you know, the rest is history. But that was the trajectory. 1992, State of the Union Address. 1996, I believe it was, Daily Show. But that, that was a straight line from, from there to the Daily Show. Did that also change up, like, in terms of the programming? You're, did you guys shift more to that? Um, did you see, like, a, I guess, like, or was it just like, oh, no, we're going to, we're kind of growing that, like, almost like a, as an independent comedy silo within this, this organization? Like, I'm kind of curious about that. Well, you know, truthfully, I left Comedy Central around the time Daily Show was getting started. And mm -hmm. I was not on the production team. I was there when they, probably for the first six or eight months, so I saw what was going on. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it was siloed, but, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a show. They got a mm -hmm. set. It's not mm -hmm. like they're sitting in the middle of the, of the floor with everybody else. Um, but I think it was all of a piece in that, you know, we had defined our brand at that point, I, as I said, early on as edgy comedy for young adults. And that's what we were doing. The brilliance of that was that advertisers Turns out they loved it. Who knew? But it's very hard to get young males, especially, who aren't watching sports uh, in those days. So suddenly there's a new vehicle to get young males, and yeah. the advertisers loved it. They jumped on board. So that's really that was really our North Star. you got to remember, uh, ultimately, television is programming for your audience. Yeah. And the, more you, the bigger the audience, the more you learn about them, the more you want to give them what they're, what they're looking for. A brand is a promise to your uh, to your consumer, to your audience, so that when they turn on the channel, they know what they're going to get, no matter what time it is, and that's what we were mm -hmm. doing. That's awesome. So what what was what happened next then with your your exit, and then kind of um, from there, I guess any any major you know events and what took place from there for you? Well, my exit happened in the mid '90s. I mean, yeah. we started we started comedy, you know, in the late '80s, early '90s. I was there for seven or eight years. Yeah. And then they brought in new management mm. and I had been programming, head of programming, head of marketing. And the new management came in and said, okay, everybody out. Mm. And uh, which is not atypical in corporate uh, transitions, but it was extremely painful for yeah. me personally, because I had really poured myself personally into this channel in a way that I never did before or since in any job. Partly because it was my, you know, my idea and my pushing it, uh, and and my making it happen and my really solving the problems that came along and making sure it was successful. And I remember asking myself, you know, when I got fired, what do you have to do to get a job in this town? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about you start the whole business up, right? And then somebody comes in and says you're fired. It happens all the time. I mean. Yeah. Something it's something I probably should have expected. And the guy who fired me um, didn't say, hey, you know, you're a jerk. Get out of here. He said, you got your fingerprints all over this place. I, I can't have you here. You know, I got to start fresh. He didn't want somebody around like me who he thought, and this may not have been true, was going to be throwing rocks from the sidelines. I wouldn't have done that. But it's a consideration. And some people do do that with new management, grumbling and sabotaging and all the rest. So, um, mm. so I left and I was very distraught. What happened and, next? What did you do? I mean, that's also, you have this considerable experience, but you also, yeah, kind of poured your lifeblood into it, you know, your energy and your spirit to, to get it where it was. 
what happened next then for you? Well, amazingly, I think back on what I was thinking at that time. I had a wife and two kids and a mortgage. And I was scared. You know, I was really, I had never been fired. Because I always said, why would anybody want to fire me? You know, I'm smart. I get the job done. I work hard, all that kind of stuff. I'll never get fired. And there I was fired. So I really learned that lesson, which is you don't just get fired because you're, you know, doing a bad job. You get fired for other reasons. I also learned, you know, my first thought was, oh, gosh, I'll never work in a business or anywhere again. You know, yeah. it's like breaking up with a girlfriend or something. You just say, oh, that's it. Nobody, nobody's ever going to love me again. But of course, that's not true. And I had friends in the business and I had friends generally and they helped me out. You know, I got I got some direction and I got a consulting gig from one of them. And, you know, they they kept me afloat until I found a new full time job. And that was at Court TV, which was another channel that had been started as an all courtroom trial coverage channel by a lawyer named Steve Brill that was failing miserably, just, you know, about to go under. And it was owned amazingly by NBC and Cablevision and I believe TCI, uh, Liberty Media now, Liberty Media. And they thought, all right, we'll give it one more chance. We've got 28 million subscribers. There's 80 million to be had, but maybe we can do something else with it, build the channel up and, you know, get our investment back. So they hired me and they hired my boss, a guy named uh, Henry Schleif. Henry hired me the first week he was there. He said, I don't know anything about cable television. You seem to know what you're doing. So you're going to do it. <laughs> you're going to figure out how to make this place successful. And so we ended up being a great team and I had so much fun. And people say, well, you know, you went to work for a channel that was about trials and you turned it into a channel about crime and justice, um, which is what we did. How did you do that after comedy? It's so completely different. And the answer is I got fascinated by the, by the, you know, the, the challenge of it, you know, how do you turn this, into something successful. And by the way, crime and justice is probably the most popular subject matter on television now, as it was then. It's, it's most books that are sold these days. Most novels are mysteries or forensics or procedurals. You know, so that, it's not like it was something I had no interest in at all. Of course, it's all around us. But like anything else, the more I looked at it, the more interesting it got. And I just had a great time doing that. And then we, we did make the channel extremely successful. And it was bought by Turner Networks for, I think, about almost a billion and a half, 1.6, 1.7 million dollars, billion dollars, rather. And that made us feel good, except we were out of jobs again. <laughs> Um, let me, let me ask you this real quick before we move on. If we, if I can, I'm curious on that front, like you mentioned, you know, at the outset of this interview too, how you kind of bring with you your experiences. So what did you bring with you to that particular one? When you looked at then this, this new space, obviously some things were similar, some things were different. What exactly, what do you see when you reflect back on it? That were some key things you, you brought to it maybe creatively or, um, you know, from a business sense, et cetera, et cetera. You have to consider the fact that comedy was a transformative piece of my career. When I went in, I didn't know programming. I didn't know anything about it or production or comedy. And when I came out the other side, I was pretty, I wouldn't say totally seasoned, but I was a seasoned uh, executive. I'd run a programming department. I'd run a marketing department. I knew what made those things work and not work. So I walked into this next job with a whole lot of understanding about how it all worked how a cable television could go from being nothing to successful. And I think that confidence really stood me in good stead. Now, it's not like I walked in there cocky, but I felt that I could figure out what was going on and come up with a solution. And I did that pretty quickly. I said, you know what, we're going to put in a primetime schedule that's really built around true crime forensic procedurals. And the reason forensics, because you can sell it as science and not crime. The advertisers, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to buy crime, but you tell them, Hey, it's science, man. They're, you know, these guys are using science to solve crimes. They say, I like that. So that was kind of a, a little spin on what we were doing. And it also inspired our brand. Remember, you know, on air promotion and all the advertising you do and all the conversations you have with yourself about what you want to be. 
that's the conversation we had about what we wanted to be. We wanted to make crime, criminology, justice, we wanted to make that important and, and something with a lot of gravitas. And truthfully, I got to know a lot of detectives, a lot of policemen, a lot of judges, a lot of lawyers, and man, that's a great part of the world, that criminal justice world. These people are dedicated, hard work. Not that I didn't think they were. I just hadn't considered it in the same way. Um, so we, we certainly uh, became the center of that universe for a long time. People really did respect, in, in the business, respected what we were doing. The other thing I took to, remember I told you that I was not accepted by the comedy world when I walked in? Okay, so I walked in to this group, and there were journalists. I mean, these were guys who were reporting on trials, doing the kind of reporting that Jeffrey Tubin ultimately became famous for. We don't have to go too deeply into that, but he was, you know, he was a great reporter on the criminal justice system. But that's what these guys were. They were all hardcore reporters. Some of them worked at the Times and, and, and Newsweek and those kinds of things. And journalism is a pretty tight-knit club. And I walked in from comedy. <laughs> And they looked at me as like, okay, what's this heathen going to do to us? Because they were serious about journalism. And I had to get them on my side. I had to say, look, we are going to, first of all, make this channel successful. Without a new plan, you guys are toast and I'm toast. Second, I, I have a great deal of regard for what you do. So don't misunderstand that. I am not going to pollute it. I am not going to take advantage of it. You guys are going to do what you do. We are going to do different things in prime time, and we're going to end up collaborating on a lot of things, which is what we did. We were making documentaries, and these guys had a lot of stuff to say about it. So we put them in the documentaries. So that that really was, in terms of what did I do right there, that was, that was I think, a big part of it. I did not throw out the previous management, by the way, when I walked in. I saw who was good and who was less good and dealt with it in months to come. That's awesome. And I, want, I wanted to ask, because I know we're, we're actually coming up to time, and I kind of wish I had, obviously, would have more time, but I'm just going to point people to Constant Comedy, a memoir, pick up the book for the full stories. But I wanted to shift a little bit to the person who, um, like, I guess a couple questions. One is specifically about like people who are in these kind of creative spaces, and you know what you've done is creative, and it has a, there's a business component to it, and there's the administrative and the producing side. I mean, there's so many elements to it. Um, and I think of that, I look at that as like a really challenging creative puzzle um, with a lot of other skill sets that you had put in place, but it, it, it speaks to the creative. For somebody who's looking at kind of the, the space right now, whatever's out there, whatever they're looking at, like what, what recommendation do you have, whether it's specific to our times right now, or even just a general philosophy of how you approach these kind of problem sets, like I guess any piece of advice for a creative who's trying to maybe make a name or establish himself or herself or together, um, any recommendations or thoughts for them right now? Yeah, um, I have one. And that is based on my experience, I, I kind of ended up a creative executive, meaning I understood the creative side and had done some of the creative work, but I also understood the business side and knew what the realities are. There's Sometimes creatives are can, uh, and and business people are separated into the you know the talent and the suits and there's this big war because the talent wants to do what they know is right because they're the artists and they're creating and the suits just want to tear them apart and say you can't do that because we don't have the money or it doesn't work or whatever and there's this big fight. My I urge everybody to you know, really kind of come and understand the other side for a couple of reasons. One, it's the creative executives who get to the top, you know, who really end up running things. It's not the guys who are just creative or the guys who are just business guys. Yeah, those guys will always have their place. But if you really want to move around and, and, and do some good work and possibly get to the top of the organization, you have to understand both of those things. And you have to understand how to work with creative people and work with business people. That's how these things continue. Um, secondly, it was, you know, it was certainly a lot of fun to be a creative executive. I will say that because people who were creative working under me would say things like, you know, I never had a boss who really understood what I did, but it's nice working for you. And that's important. That's important to appreciate your people and the work that they do on both sides, the business and the creative side. 
And do you have any thoughts too, in terms of like looking at the lay of the land these days, you know, with the proliferation of like social media and stuff like that and how things have even changed since you were, you know, focused primarily on television and just a different world, different, different media world. Do you still stay abreast of it? And um, what are your thoughts on any opportunities or anything that you're looking at as uh, seeing maybe potentially as an opportunity? Because it, it seems like from the stories you tell and what you've done, you, you have had good vision. And part of that good vision is like, See, seeing things that are off in a distance, so to speak, I guess you could say. So I'm just curious if you're, uh, if there's anything you take from what's out there right now, if you see any major opportunities for creatives or entrepreneurs or anybody. Well, I think there's always opportunities for creative people. Um, in the television business, it, it all comes down to uh, storytelling, ultimately. And uh, then there are some of the other considerations, which is how are the audiences changing in the way they're relating to content. Short form, which is something we did at Comedy Channel 30 years ago, is now kind of the norm. Everybody's looking, you know, flipping through their Facebook feeds and, and YouTube and everything else watching clips. There was even recently, I forget the name of the thing, but the, 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 um, the business that was started to do high, uh, highly produced short form series and stuff, eight minute episodes and everything. It did not work. But I think that is and has been a direction for a long time, telling shorter form stories, telling a complete story in, in less time. Serialization, which was not the same kettle of fish in the old days when you had just linear channels. Now with Netflix and Amazon, you can serialize stuff. People don't have to be at the television set at nine o'clock on a Tuesday to see what happened you know, from last week. They can see it whenever they want. And that's what's making, you know, all these serials possible. Uh, and I think that's a great innovation because when you're making a television show that's going to go on potentially forever, you know, you can work with a lot, of, a lot of the creative there. The characters can evolve. The situations can evolve. The plot can evolve. Where it's taking place can evolve. So those, those are really a lot of creative opportunities for people looking to get into it. I love it. Well, Art, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches. Before I let you go, where can people reach out to find you and where can, where can they pick up a copy of the book? Oh, great. Yeah, the book is called Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. You can get it in any bookstore. You can get it on Amazon. Or you can just go to my website, artbellwriter.com. Artbellwriter.com. And that'll take you to a place that can, you can buy my book. You can communicate with me. You can read some of my other written stuff. And uh, I hope you do. I'm also Fantastic. on Facebook. Fantastic. Well, also everybody listening, um, we'll have that on the show notes as well. So make sure to check those out. Go to tomworkus.com slash podcast to check out the show notes and catch this episode of In the Trenches with Art Bell. Art, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches. Thank you, Tom. Awesome. And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating review. Just go to tomworkus.com slash iTunes, and that'll take you to iTunes where you can leave a five-star rating review. And that really helps spread the word about this podcast. And finally, if you need help growing your online business or generating new traffic leads and sales at a profit, reach out to me at tom at tomworkus.com or head over to the website tomworkus.com and sign up for the free newsletter. That's it for today. Stay frosty.